Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant with Future Fuel Strategies. And with me today is Alan Schaefer, who's the Executive Director of the Diesel Technology Forum. Welcome to the show, Alan. Great to be with you, Tammy. So Alan has the distinction of being the the first repeat guest on the program, and I'm sure there'll be many down the road. So I didn't make any awards or anything like that. But I think it goes to show that the issues surrounding diesel, which I think is a future fuel, are sort of ongoing and unfolding and all that. So I look forward to the to the conversation today. And I'm going to go right into it. And it's kind of um, something I want to give you a chance to comment on. And it was a recent post. I will link the post for listeners so that they can easily jump right to it. So this is a post that I did on a on an MIT study. And just to give the listeners and Alan some background, that study found that 10 major auto manufacturers produced diesel cars. They were sold between 2000 and 2015. And the researchers say they generated up to 16 times more emissions on the road than in regulatory tests. And this is similar to what other organizations like ICCP have, have shown in their own studies. The researchers in the MIT study predicted that the excess emissions brought a significant health impact, uh, causing approximately 2,700 premature deaths per year across Europe. So a lot of these studies have been focused on Europe since it's a large uh, diesel market for uh, light-duty vehicles. So these excess emissions, the researchers say, may not have been as a result of unlawful violations like we saw with this Volkswagen, but the team wrote that, quote, permissive testing procedures at the EU level and defective emission control strategies may be to blame. And one of the researchers actually went a step further and said there's no safe level for NOx and that electrification as a result is the answer. So that was a long prelude. Sorry about that. But my first question to you, Alan, is, is that researcher right? And is it the answer? And if not, what is? First of all, I would say there's really nothing new coming out of that analysis that we've been talking about the diesel gate issue since 2015, and we're now going on to 2019. So I think it's, it's uh, folks are pretty familiar with what happened there relative to them. But what that did was to I think peel back some layers of the onion, and so everybody got a close look at how emissions testing and certification actually works. And we're surprised to learn that there was a very different way of testing vehicles in Europe than in the United States. And so people were alarmed by that. But I would say that, you know, that is their their legal system of the way vehicles were tested and certified. And just as the U.S. system is not a perfect test representation of the possible emissions of every vehicle under every operating condition, the European approach really couldn't do that either. I think, you know, you could argue that each the U.S. and the European have different sensibilities and checks and balances on their testing procedures. And you might say the Europeans had much more flexibility in terms of how the vehicles were tested, where they were tested, who did the testing. Some of those kind of self-selection factors certainly have come to the forefront. But it is the lawful system that was in place in Europe, you know, like it or not. Now, having said that, obviously a lot is changing and and changing pretty fast. And there was a, I think, even well before Dieselgate, there was a good three or four year process with industry and government there in Brussels to revise 
and really modernized the approach to emissions testing to reflect more of the real driving emissions performance of vehicles. And this, of course, is at the crux of this MIT study, which is, says that there may be a lot more emissions that came out than tests said, and the vehicles might have higher emissions and pollute more than the tests said. And, you know, they're right. They, they were. But again, this was a lawful and allowable activity under the, the European regulation. So I think that everybody now is moving in a direction to try and uh, come closer on all the investments that are made in vehicle testing and certification um, in the lab and try and make that match really much more closely to the real driving emissions in the real world. And there's a huge transparency to this now, thanks to published data from emissions analytics and others. Uh, consumers in Europe can you know, go find this data on the website and say, well, I want to buy a new car. Um, you know, how does it perform on an, emissions, on an emissions basis in the real world? So it's it's a very transparent kind of activity. And I would say the, the one thing that has come out of this that will benefit everybody probably in the end is, is this transparency. So consumers can see more about how the cars actually perform. For manufacturers, it's very challenging to devise emissions control strategies and test procedures that are reflective of every single possible operating condition of a whole array of hundreds of different vehicle types. I think we should be expect that there's going to be variation there. And I guess the question is how much variation is everybody comfortable with? So, you know, and as for applying a health effects risk number to it, 2,700 potential premature deaths, I think it's, um, as all these risk factors are, they're just statistical indicators of what might be. It's probability. It's not that this has actually occurred. It's what could happen because NOx comes from a wide variety of sources, not just diesels, but utilities, industrial processes, uh, gasoline vehicles. So kind of a, a big response to all that. So that's kind of my part one. But as for the matter of whether or not the researchers believe there's no safe level of NOx and that electrification is the answer, I think, first of all, in the U.S., let me just talk from that perspective for a second. EPA has established a national standard for NO2 of 100 parts per billion. And if you look at the EPA Air Trends website, Air quality data here in the U.S. show that the trends are well below the standard of 100 parts per billion, and I mean well below it by 30, 40 parts per billion less than the allowable limit. So what that shows in the U.S. anyway, and it's a very much downward trend, it shows that all the uh, regulations and emissions control technologies that have been put in place in the last 10 or 15 years have done their job, and they really weren't targeting NOx per se. They were really targeting ozone. And so, by ineffectively though it, it drives a NOx standard, we are well below the allowable levels for um, NO2 emissions in the U.S. So, EPA has determined that there is a, a safe level, so to speak, that is is protective of public health and the environment. They've set that level, and air quality here in the U.S. is well below that level. So, you know, I think it, that's a good news story. As for, geez, is electrification the answer? You know, I think. This is a great topic of discussion, obviously. It is one that's, uh, I think, um, I think it's expected, frankly, given the kind of the times that we're in. But um, I think the challenges that we face from a climate and other perspectives, really, you know, there needs to be a variety of different solutions here. And anyone that says that one particular technology is the answer, um, I think that kind of logic is suspect and, and incorrect because there really is not one technology that can get the job done. And, you know, looking in Europe in 2014, fossil fuels were really the primary source of, of electrical power. 
of 42% of all the gross electricity generation in Europe came from burning fossil fuels. You end up, you know, doing this shell game, shifting from tailpipe emissions to some other kinds of emissions and power plants. And you might be zero at the tailpipe, but the source of your power goes back to a power plant that might be every bit or more dirty than the tailpipe was. So I think we have to be very careful as we draw some sweeping conclusions about which strategies and technologies are the absolute winners for the future, because none of us, I I don't think, can predict that. On your last comment, what I call that is moving the coconut. You know, we're sort of pretending like we are making a dent or making a difference in climate change, and all we've really done is just sort of move it around. (laughs) You know, it's just, you know, like a that shell game that used to be on the price is right. <laughs> and we're telling ourselves we're, we're doing we're doing something and really it's just the ball's under a different coconut. That's right. I think one of the bad things that's been done there, and I think how should EU regulators be dealing with NOx from these vehicles? I think first of all they're they're working hard to get that alignment between real world testing and certification. And everybody recognizes the nature of that challenge and is trying to do better there. I think that what we have going on, though, is now three years into this situation, you know, diesel sales have fallen in Europe from over 50% of the market share down into the into the 40s in some countries. And so we would, we would expect that that would be happening. The other thing that is coming to light is that the signals that the government has been sending about these technologies and sort of which ones might be winners or losers in the minds of the government, they are having the very bad effect, I think, of delaying people's investment in new technology in general. So what you have are people holding on to older cars that have more emissions, less primitive emissions control systems, if you will, but have more emissions. And those older cars are staying on the road longer because people are just not sure. I mean, are they going to ban my technology tomorrow? You know, should I wait? I really like the economical operation and the longevity of the diesel and it suits me just fine. Uh, should I wait or is it going to cost me more to drive to where I need to get to work? You know, what should I do? And so a lot of people don't do anything. Then you make the problem worse. And I think that's exactly where we are and that the the media has been a major driver of this and really going, I think, beyond the pale here of, of you know, assigning blame to a particular technology. I think certainly there are many issues with diesel in Europe, and I think everyone is aware of what those are. But we also recognize that to meet those climate change and CO2 levels that they want to meet, they're not going to be able to do that effectively without the diesel. And it is really a um, CO2 went up, I think, about 1.6 percent from 27 to 2018 and will continue to creep upward maybe towards 3 percent. This is an outcome that is not desirable but it's directly the effect of this scandal and the government's response to it. So I think the way forward is we need to have much more, everybody needs to take a deep breath about these technologies and need to do more to get new technologies on the road and do more to get the older stuff off. If, as these researchers might suggest, we should wait for electrification, how long would it take for electric vehicles to be of a level of penetration that would deliver the same NOx benefit as simply buying a newer car, one that's new instead of one that's 10 or 15 years old on the road, still powered by gas or diesel. So I think those are those are really tough questions that the government really needs to, to step back and, and look at in a bigger way. And we have a little bit going on in Europe of what we've had in the U.S. now for the last, I think, 10 years, the trend has started. And that is Europeans are starting to like SUVs. For the larger vehicles that have bigger footprints, 
they have higher weights, they need to have more fuel efficiency. And if we want to see those kind of vehicles, if we want to have a environmental and climate policy that is aligned with consumer preferences instead of trying to go the other way, then we need to be mindful of that because that really makes even a stronger case that we need to have the newer generation Euro 6 level tested vehicles, diesels, getting onto the roads there in these larger vehicles. I mean, there's not electrification from smaller vehicles is, is maybe an easier task and for urban operation city driving, but driving any distances or planning to keep vehicles for long times, I mean, the, the diesel still is the most attractive option and for many consumers. But there's a lot wound up in, in, in the Europe story about diesel. And, you know, it is a situation that I hope starts to, to take a better direction here in 2019. So um, a couple of uh, follow-up questions, but uh, first the comments. So I was just in Europe last week, the last 10 days, and I can tell you, I saw a lot of crossovers, you know, what we would call crossovers uh, <laughs> in Europe. And, you know, crossovers are dominating the sales landscape here uh, in the U.S., and the larger vehicle trend is happening in China, although you hear a lot about microcars and microelectric vehicles and of course, they have a new energy vehicle policy, but they are trending toward the, the, the larger vehicles as well. So I, I think your point is, you know, is well taken there. So my question, follow-up question is, you know, sort of seeing what's happening. I mean, do you see the tide uh, turning and policymakers coming to, at least in Europe, coming to more of a reckoning with this dichotomy of being at least uncomfortable with diesel, if not outright trying to get rid of diesel, and the climate reality. I mean, you know, and also this week, you know, the EU announced that it wants to be net zero by 2050. And I'm in my head going, well, I wonder how that's going to happen because the trend is an increase, in, in, in particularly in transport CO2. So, you know, first you, you see the tide turning. And, you know, how do you see policymakers sort of getting to grips with this sort of dichotomy, dichotomy, or do you? I think it's exactly right. And I think there's, you know, there's this danger out there when when we see folks, you know, put these dates and, and timeframes in play. I mean, obviously, number one, those folks are not going to be around. They won't be in political office, likely, or won't be around to determine whether that was a good move or not. And I think that there is diversity of energy is a good thing. So whether or not, you know, industries, manufacturers would like to have, you know, just sell one product. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll get to that point, or maybe some manufacturers will only decide they're only going to have one kind of technology powertrain. But for, you know, the very vast number of people, I mean, we're, everybody's different. Their driving needs are different. We have a lot of disruption in mobility from ride sharing services and other things that, will come into play here maybe more in the next five to 10 years. So I think if we took a more holistic view, it would be that we need to embrace energy diversity. And yeah, that's the diesel industry saying that more other technologies make sense here. But we also need to value the newest generation of diesel that we have and do more to get more of that on the road as soon as possible. Because one of the things that gets lost in these conversations, I think, is the time continuum. And the media and others talk about these things as if they've already happened. And we are a very, very, very long ways away from mass electrification of passenger vehicles, if ever. 
and you know, recognizing the stakes are high there for investments and those kind of things, that's great. And that's you know, it's just sort of part of business. But you know, as we try and set policy goals, we need to be realistic about what what technologies are going to get us there. And when you look at, at that, just this effect of diesel in Europe, where there's a high penetration of diesel cars, and then all of a sudden the market slows or people stall on buying new vehicles, and immediately you see the CO2 levels go up in those countries, going the wrong direction for climate change strategy and control. So if I was a, just a simple, logical politician, I would say, we don't want to do that. We need to keep making progress now, and we also need to maybe try and set our sights further down the road. But I don't want to sacrifice near-term gain for a long-term popular vision. And I think that's really the danger of this of this whole discussion about which technologies are winners and losers. So I have to ask you what your, your reaction is to this yellow vest movement in France, because I think this is very relevant to the discussion here. And I, and I often say sort of jokingly, but it's true. You know, I'll know that it's really serious when, you know, policymakers want to close the gap on people tax differentiation. We don't really see that. Now we see the efforts sort of starting in France and, you know, you know, people are burning down, you know, the streets in Paris. And and actually around the country, actually, I was in France last week and the yellow vests we're everywhere, and people are start for sin. People are mad. I mean, they are mad. I mean, they block traffic. You know, they're protesting everywhere. So I wonder, you know, what you have to, you know, what you what you think about that? Um, because the way I see it is, you also can't set policies in a vacuum that doesn't bring the people along. So that's exactly what you're kind of talking about here. Is um, you know, sort of this. Um, long-term vision, you know, and, you know, you haven't brought the people along with it. Or are you actually harming the people, you know, who are in existence now? And some of them are actually vulnerable populations that rely on, you know, rely on their cars and rely on people to sort of get them from, from point A to point B. So I wonder what you have to say, if you have any, any comment on that, because it's just so relevant. I mean, it's literally playing out over there in France right now, this whole issue. Well, I, I think there's there's two things that come to mind for me. One is that this is a you know this is a personal issue. It's a pocketbook issue for the French, who you know see economic policy a, a bad economic policy when when they see it and they react in a way that is I think should be expected. That if you're going to make major shifts in economic and fuel tax policy, that are going to disrupt the livelihoods of millions of workers who rely on service and delivery vehicles and even their own passenger vehicles, in this instance in France, the country that has the highest penetration of diesel cars, then you should expect that there's going to be, you know, angry protests in the street. I mean, I think it's, it would, it was, it, it's kind of, you know, sort of blind. I wouldn't say that, that the government should have been blindsided by this. They should have, they should have really thought this through more, but um, this is a populist reaction. I think in just the same way that we see you know, some people going to protest about climate because they see it as, you know, they want to advance a, what in their mind is a virtuous um, environmental and, and future policy. And I think we can all agree that we have to have a longer term future for this planet, right? But the way that, it, that you go about that, I think, is one that needs to be more thoughtful and inclusive of, of, of these views and these extremism kind of approaches where we're going to shift gears and, you know, tomorrow start using all electrification or I'm going to, 
change the tax policy on fuels and, you know, like it or lump it. Well, I think what we're seeing now is the public is going to revolt on those kind of approaches. And it's really bad governing. And I think it's unfortunate because a lot of people are being hurt in the process, not to mention, you know, the actual, I think, the scar on the French president and his his leadership skills there. I think there's a lot to be said for uh, wanting to push the envelope to, towards the, the climate to control for the future. But this really tells me, you know, how you go about that, better be more thoughtful about it because it's real pain to real people. And these are the, the people that are living it now. So they can either help you achieve the, get on the road to achieving that longer term goal, or they can, you know, draw the line in the sand, which is what's happened in France. And I think the same thing is is, is happened in, in countries treatment of diesel passenger vehicles about whether you should buy it or not buy it. Or, you know, when you start banning cars and technology from different places in different times, and those are, those are very populist pocketbook kind of issues. And if we didn't see any reaction, then people wouldn't care about diesel, maybe. But what we're seeing is a big reaction. So people do care about this technology. They do care about the prices of it. They do care about the use of it and its ability to be used freely throughout their country and, and Europe. It's a bad precedent to set, I think. Well, I want to um, move on and ask you about diesel fuel substitute options or or complementary, I guess we could also say, options for diesel. It just seems like there is so much going on out there. I mean, there is biodiesel. There is renewable diesel or HVO. There's, you know, renewable natural gas or biomethane. There's there's uh, good old CNG, you know, and now you see these e-fuels or power to X fuels. And I wonder, um, how do you view um, these options? You know, which ones are really, you know, do you view as really, you know, a complementary and attractive now, you know, in the midterm, long term, you know, how do you view all of these options? Because there seem like <laughs> there's quite a few of them. And that was the short list. I know I didn't even name all of them. so. You know, there, there. I think are there are great opportunities for the kind of advanced renewable biofuels that are being used increasingly today uh, for a couple reasons. One, you know, these renewable fuels take advantage of all the existing infrastructure and engine uh, technology that that the fleet, the city, the town, the country has already invested in. So, you know, overnight you can switch out um, all or a portion of your petroleum diesel consumption and start using more renewable fuels in either a blend or in some cases the 100% switch as some cities have done in California. And so what you're doing is leveraging all of your existing assets and capital investments in fueling and infrastructure. And I think you know these are really smart moves um, by cities who want to do more to green their transportation and and to have a near-term strategy to reduce CO2 emissions. And it's a great way to leverage the best of what we already have by making that better by using some of these renewables. So I think there's there's great hope there. I think, you know, we have a government that has kind of goofy climate, excuse me, goofy um, biofuel policy right now. And so not necessarily sending the best signals to the market about the volumes of biodiesel that are going to be part of the program for the coming years. And that, of course, you know, gets producers in in a bind in terms of their planning and, and what they're going to put in the crops in the field next year or what they're going to, where they're going to be able to sell their, you know, the, the soybeans that are used for animal food and other things, you know, the oil from that is what we're talking about here in the largest volume for, uh, for biodiesel. So 
you know, the, you have to find another place to use that if you're not going to be able to, to use it for biofuels because of economic reasons. But I think, you know, there's folks that are using these fuels now. They, they know how they work. They know what you have to do to make them successful in terms of the proper care and feeding of storage of biofuels. And I think we're we're beyond that that kind of stage now. I think there is great promise for the use of renewables, advanced renewable biofuels in cities. And I'm just reminded in, in places like San Francisco there where, you know, all the muni buses, six, I guess 606 of them are fueled, mm-hmm. fueled exclusively with renewable diesel fuel. So they took the all existing bus fleet, got rid of ultra-low sulfur diesel fuel from their tanks and started using the, it's a Neste renewable diesel fuel there. And so they saved over 62,000 tons of CO2 uh, from that fleet um, in a year. Same thing with their heavy-duty vehicles and uh, city service trucks and stuff. Over 600 of those were switched over to renewable diesel, and they, you know, they saved over 10,000 tons of CO2 a year without any changes to infrastructure whatsoever. Great promise there, I think, for these fuels. I think, you know, the challenge for scaling this up is just that. It's, it's you know, how could you scale it up in a much larger way? And I think, you know, there's a combination of, of things that have to happen together there. You've got technology. Is it able to do that on a large scale to produce these uh, fuels in big quantities from waste streams, whether they're animal fat processing or other things? And then, you know, the policies to to try and encourage their use. So, I think the limitations really right now only are uh, mostly on the on the supply side that if we could if we had more renewable fuels we could probably see more consumption of those particularly in cities that want to do more and we've got you know New York just uh, announced a plan to use 99% renewable diesel in over 1000 city vehicles so now we have some activity on the east coast looking at that we've got a lot of places in California, cities and counties using it already because of the, the, it's the fundamental way that they're achieving their low carbon fuel standard. Beyond that, you know, we see announcements of investments of renewable fuel refineries up in North Dakota. REG and some others are, are you know, looking at expanding the refining capacity to produce these renewable diesel fuels. So you know, what this all says to me is that, you know, there's a huge confidence, number one, in the long term future of diesel as the workhorse for the global economy, uh, whether that's trucking or, or heavy-duty construction or mining or transportation. There's a big future there for diesel. And one of the ways that future might be you know, expanded or extended would be to you know, use more of these renewables in that existing technology, which is really a, a, a seamless kind of transition. So I think there's great promise there, and you know we see very good experience coming from fleets that are using it and, and know how to manage these fuels properly. So, um, you know, what's not to love? I mean, the, yeah, they're they're getting some price uh, assistance right now in California um, for the use of those. They're they're not without a higher cost over petroleum diesel. Nor are the switches to other kinds of fuels, though. And when you look at all the attendant infrastructure and other costs. You know, renewable diesel fuels from all these different sources start to look pretty good. So, I'm very optimistic about the future of these and enhancing the long-term sustainability of the diesel engine. So, what do you think of of sort of these on the cusp fuels? You know, like like power to X or these these e fuels or these synthetic diesel fuels. Do you see them gaining traction or becoming commercialized in the market? You know, sometime within the next. 10 years, do you see them as viable viable options or too early to say or too, early, too experimental or something else? 
I would say a little bit too early to say. I think, you know, when you look, step back for a second and look at heavy duty policy right now, we have two big things happening. One, we just had the EPA announce a new clean truck initiative that is going to start a regulatory process now over the next 18 months or so that will culminate likely in a, a, a new emission standard and, and the accompanying parts of that for future heavy duty vehicles, uh, diesel and other fuels included. That's going to mean ultimately ultimately lower NOx emissions from new engines at some point out into the future. And that will you know, require some of the uh, its own changes in, in engine combustion and control and emissions control systems that are used to achieve that. So that's the, that's the, the newest thing on the horizon. That's happening at a time where manufacturers are now required to achieve their phase two greenhouse gas emission reductions starting uh, this year and going forward now with the phase two implementation. So they're trying to squeeze every ounce of efficiency possible out of the total vehicle. And part of that is the engine and powertrain. And so all of this is premised, though, on existing fuels, right? So how these synthetics and other things come into play down the road, there needs to be you know, probably a bigger reckoning on that because you know, manufacturers have to achieve these these standards now for you know 435,000 miles of useful life in their in their heavy duty engines. There's possibilities that those numbers might grow with these new regulations being considered. So the premise of all that, of course, is the D975 ultra low sulfur diesel fuel spec. And so when you start introducing new fuels into the equation even if it's only a, on a fleet or batch or a limited geographic area of use basis, you know, how do we understand how that happens and comes together? And what do you need to do to make sure that manufacturers can, can meet the standards that they're required to and their customers can have a product that runs on the fuels, that runs on different fuels if they want it to, but still runs well and efficiently and, and has the same durability they're used to. So I think the jury's still out on some of these, but the policy climate is is pushing hard for further reductions from diesel. Manufacturers are set to achieve that, I think, but there's there's a lot of still big moving parts in there, and changing around fuel specs and standards is you know not necessarily conducive to being able to achieve all those things that are already kind of uh, loaded and and coming. So I think the jury's still out on some of those. Well, I want to ask you also about. Electrification. So we talked about that a little bit earlier, but more more uh, uh, on the passenger car or light duty fleet in Europe. Now I want to ask you about heavy duty um, electrification because it seems like a couple of years ago I would have said, you know, no way, Jose, don't see it happening. You know, doesn't make sense, too expensive, not realistic, you know, so on and so forth. But what's interesting, and I still basically kind of believe that as an analyst, and I can certainly put my my reasons together in a more supportive fashion, but it does seem like there are a lot of announcements out there, not just from Tesla, uh, but from other uh, companies that are interested in doing or are doing heavy-duty electrification. We have some city buses, uh, both in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, such as China, that are uh, electrified. You have companies like, you know, FedEx, uh, Walmart, you know, that are investing in, you know, heavy duty electrification. So, you know, how do you see this sort of uh, evolving trend? Are you in, in agreement with me? Um, you know, how do you see the, you know, is, how do you see this um, evolving uh, over time? Or is this just kind of like an experiment 
and good public relations? Well, I would say, um, you know, right now it's more of the latter. I think, though, I would say that, you know, realistically, we're we are seeing the opportunity of some new energy sources. And one of the things that we're learning is that those sources might be better in some applications than others. And you have some proof of concept with this now with some limited electric vehicles uh, on the road here in the U.S. in the light duty space. And, you know, when you start thinking about the ability to, you know, have last mile delivery or, or urban kind of operations that have, you know, limited range and go back to the same place every night. And, you know, could they be fueled by something other than, than liquid petroleum fuels that you have today, gas or diesel? I think the answer to that is, is certainly, yes, it seems like it might be possible, but it's all dependent on things like, you know, the battery. And, you know, how much power density can you get out of the battery under the current technologies? And where does that look like that's going? And then, you know, there are bigger questions about electrification in terms of the use of rare metals and and cobalt and all these other things that are sort of shoved to the side now. But if you if you started really pushing hard on this for much broader electrification, you know, is is there enough capacity to get there? So I think for those people that, you know, are have a mind that everything is going to change to that. I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I don't think even if it technologically could, would that be the smartest move we could make as a country? Probably not. So you've got potential certainly for electrification in smaller vehicles that are lighter weight, less load sensitive. That seems like that might work. And and I think, you know, the jury's still out though in a long-term evaluation on that a little bit. When we get into the heavier stuff, you know, there have been some really interesting announcements this, this past year, and um, I think there are some companies that have no experience in the trucking sector that are thinking that they can kind of uh, come in and, and sort of show the trucking industry that, you know, they're the new game in town and have the ability to, you know, to sort of upset the apple cart in terms of conventional manufacturers and, and sort of the way people buy and maintain and spec trucks for the future. But I think we're really, 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 really long ways away from that. And, you know, I, I worked in the trucking industry for 13 years uh, on environmental and energy policy, and I'm very familiar with things that motivate truckers to invest in new technology and all the perils of that, whether it's a safety technology or a productivity technology or uh, an engine and emissions technology. I mean, there's there's just a lot of issues there. And for some of them, they don't care what's under the hood. They want to know what the, the cost per mile, what can I charge my customer and how do I make money in this deal? That's really the, the driving motivation. And, you know, if you get away from subsidies and all that for these alternative fuels, it's hard to see that those numbers are always uh, in the positive for the owner. So we also, you know, look at where diesel is. Is it getting more competitive? Is it getting cleaner, more fuel efficient? Yes to all of that. So, I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, in the next 10 years, kind of um, where we are. But I have no doubt there'll be more different kinds of fuels and technologies powering some of these vehicles. I don't think it's a mainstream thing. Um, I looked at some work that McKinsey just did, and they show, you know, the the race of the powertrains really for heavy duty well beyond 2030 of of electrical electricity having any substantial penetration there for long haul. It just doesn't seem in the range of things. Because remember, it's not just it's not just the cool factor. Can you do it? You got to be able to do it everywhere. You got to be able to do it all the time. So, you yeah. know, if I'm a trucking fleet, I'm driving all over the country. One minute I'm going this direction, next minute I'm going another direction. Is this the kind of fuel and technology that enables me to keep doing that or doing that more efficiently in a cost saving? I, I think those are really tough questions because 
people that don't know how this industry operates and what it has to do, you know, will be in for some harsh lessons about it. So it's a really interesting time, but smart companies like Cummins, you know, are out there and uh, Daimler um, and Volvo have invested a lot in, in making their diesels incredibly clean, but they're also looking at electric as we would expect that they would because they want to deliver the best thing for their customers in whatever application they need to do that. So I see, you know, a lot of uh, interesting things happening and, and, um, but, you know, diesel is going to still be king for long haul, I think for a really, really, really long time. All the other categories, we'll see how fast batteries come along and how fast the industry cuddles up to something very, very different. Well, the last question I want to ask you sort of, sort of, um, is a continuation and that is, how do you see diesel engine technology evolving, you know, over the same time period, you know, let's say through 2030, you know, and, you know, what can we expect, you know, in the, in the next few years? Because there's innovation happening there as well, both heavy yeah. and light. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, this is a technology that's not standing still. I just outlined two regulatory drivers of what the future of diesel looks like. One is this new clean truck initiative that EPA and Californian industry will be working on in the next 18 months, and that'll set the, the pace for the next emissions milestone for diesel. I mean, we are already near zero with NOx emissions. At, at 0.2 grams per brake horsepower hour is the maximum federal allowable limit today. Whether that goes down to, to 0.0 something and what time frame, you know, I think that's entirely possible. Um, and industry is industry has come together with EPA and, and California has really asked for this. And so the fact that they're, you know, putting that step forward suggests to me they've got a lot of confidence in the future of diesel and are continuing to invest in it to make it even cleaner. Nobody's saying, you know, we squeezed out the last of the emissions we can possibly do, so let's go work on some other technology. No, they're saying we're going to make diesel even cleaner than it is today. And um, that's point one. I think that that's going to say a lot about the future of it. And second, of course, is the the other part I mentioned, which is the greenhouse gas rules are in motion now. They'll be in effect really bringing new fuel efficient technologies to the whole vehicle by you know 2027. So there's a lot of um, you know long term vision for heavy duty trucking and and just diesel in general. And it's it's a it's continued investment by manufacturers. It's more government um, regulation on emission standards. You know, and it's it's experimenting with some of these renewable fuels like uh, renewable uh, diesel and some of the new synthetics and, and using more of them in the future. So I think, you know, the package is it's about trying to find, you know, the next the next level of where we can go with diesel. And we've got, uh, I think, you know, more open space ahead that you can you can further reduce emissions. You can wring more efficiency out of the engine and you can take that enhancement another direction and start to use non-petroleum-based fuels in some cases and, and you know, even further have a carbon impact. So you sort of look at all that and say, well, a lot's happening in the diesel industry. They're pushing the thermal efficiency of the engine well beyond 50% in the Department of Energy work now. And people thought 10 years ago that would be impossible. But that's pretty significant when you start, you know, trying to make these engines last a long time and be more fuel efficient you know, having that core combustion of the engine, you know, so thermally efficient that you're really pushing the envelope there, that's, that says a lot as well for investment. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a bright future. It's going to be a different kind of diesel than we have today, that's for sure. But it's going to be super clean and um, very competitive ultimately with any of these alternatives that uh, have yet to prove themselves. 
All right. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Alan so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you. And I hope you'll come back and be my first third repeat <laughs> guest because there's so much happening here and so much to talk about. If you're looking for more analysis on Future Fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com and sign up for my free bi-weekly newsletter. Thanks again for listening. Music.